to the COL Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome, everyone, to episode 15 of the COO Roundtable. Uh, we have two giant guests today that I'm really excited about. Uh, episode 14, uh, I call it a rant episode. I think officially we called it a, quote, industry spotlight, but just between us, I, I considered it a rant. Uh, I was by myself for that episode, and I simply did a monologue about the M&A landscape right now in the RA industry. And I referenced an article by Christina Townsend from Pershing, where in her article she says, you must have your capacity, your people, and your technology in place before you can even think about jumping into the M&A game. Because number one, you won't survive the implementation or the onboarding phase as you look to swallow a smaller RIA into your organization. And two, um, and more importantly, you're, you're never going to appeal to a seller in this ultra-competitive M&A environment where there are literally 40 or 50 other buyers competing for each seller. And she also says in her article that once you go through the process of cleaning up your capacity, people, and technology, and truly building a scalable, a scalable and profitable organization, you may just wake up and realize you don't even need the acquisition any longer. Your business is growing smoothly and, and efficiently. And so our, our two guests today are both highly regarded COOs in our industry who both worked very hard for many years to establish the proper processes, workflows, people, technology, et cetera, before their firms got into the acquisition game. So I'm very excited to talk to both of them in detail uh, about that. Um, PFI Advisors actually highlighted both of these firms in uh, a white paper we did two years ago. It was called Becoming a Professional Buyer. And now we have both of them uh, here on the podcast, so we're, we're very lucky. Uh, but without further ado, uh, we have today Lauren Pearson, COO at Mercer Advisors, who pretty much everyone has heard of. Um, I'll let him give a brief overview of the firm in a second. And then we also have Michael Kosman, who is COO, CCO, and partner at Aspirient. So Lauren and, and Michael, thank you both for being here. Thank awesome. you, Matt. It's, uh, it's awesome to join you on this. Awesome. Uh, Michael, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to you first. Um, why don't you give us a, just a brief overview of, of Asperian? Yeah, sure. So Asperian was formed as originally as the merger of a wealth management firm and a family office firm, uh, one being in San Francisco and one being in Los Angeles. Uh, we were formed 1-1-2008, uh, uh, a difficult year in which to put two firms together, as we all know what happened in the following uh, 15 months. Um, so we were, we've been around since, uh, again, since 2008. Um, we are currently managing about $12.5 billion in AUM. We have a couple hundred employees scattered across 11 offices across the country. Um, our client base is pretty broad. We really serve clients in two different uh, service offerings or business units, business lines, as you might call them. Um, one we call total wealth management, uh, and that is, involves uh, uh, portfolio management as well as comprehensive planning and then we have a full family office capability that we call exclusive family office which encompasses estate planners and bill pay and and tax uh, planning and compliance um, we've grown uh, historically we've grown at a measured pace I would call it in fact part of our strategy is not to be the hare but to be the tortoise in this race if you want to have an analogy to that um, and we've grown um, a, a little bit here and there over the years. When we were first formed at the beginning of 2008, we were uh, about 70 people and managing about $5 billion. Uh, we wrote out the great financial crisis, and then we've added one client at a time and a firm here or there and an advisor here or there and have gotten to the point where we are today. That's fantastic. $12.5 billion is great. Um, Lauren, why don't you tell us a little bit about Mercer for the probably one listener, maybe, that doesn't know about Mercer? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I got to say, too, it's really enjoyable to be doing this with, uh, with Michael. Michael and I have been friends and peers for years, and it's interesting the similarities between Experient and Mercer, and then also the distinctions. And, and Michael and I have great conversations about this. This is fun to be doing this today. But Mercer um, started in 1985 by uh, Kendrick Mercer. Originally, his focus was to create a, a different sort of wealth advising experience that was less about accumulating wealth and more about uh, really helping clients reorient how they think about the resources, both time and money. He really pushed clients to think about things in a thoughtful and conscious way. 
Uh, at the time, that was that was unique in the industry, and uh, the company grew. Um, over the years, we've of course added many new clients. We, um, uh, for a period of time, had uh, specialty in medical and dental, um, and uh, grew the company sort of in our second era post Kendrick Mercer uh, by going deep into uh, those niches. Um, and then eventually, we uh, created a separate um, sales team and client service team, so uh, we could take the individuals that were awesome at. Uh, developing new channels and new niches for the organization and put them full-time on selling and uh, take our advisors and dedicate them to just serving our client needs. So we've grown over the years. We're 18 and a half billion right now. And uh, we just passed 400 employees. I think it was 405 as of yesterday. And uh, Dave Welling has, has um, uh, coined a phrase that I think encompasses sort of our ideal client, and uh, we use the, uh, the 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 phrase a family office for real families. And I think the intention there is um, uh, beyond investment management, financial planning. We also do tax planning and preparation, draft estate planning documents, um, and a host of other services. But targeted at a um, a client that obviously wouldn't qualify for a for a private family office. That's done really well for us. We're finding that there's a lot of um, interest out there in that type of offering. Uh, and recently, yes, how can we, uh, how can we not, uh, how can we not uh, end that with our foray into M&A? Uh, 30 deals um, we've done now, uh, and our first one was in 2016. So that is our, I think, new era of growth. That's what my lead-in was all about, was firm was founded in 85, didn't do a deal until 2016, and then because right. you had, I'm putting words in your mouth, but <laughs> but because you had your people and technology and capacity in place uh, over all those years, you were able to really ramp up and 30 deals in, in four years is incredible. Three, three and a half years is incredible. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed your rant in episode 14. We sound <laughs> like we got, we got a lot of alignment there. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it after this. Yes. Lauren, what was the, the catalyst that started the M&A strategy in 16? Uh, you know, I give a lot of credit to our former uh, C CEO, who's now actually a ch who's now actually our chairman and, and heads our M&A strategy. That's Dave Barton. Um, I think Dave was really thoughtful in understanding that the dynamics of the industry, such as it were, uh, were going to go through a period of consolidation. And, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about doing M&A, contemplating doing it. Uh, it took a long time to get our first deal done. Um, and, and Matt is right. You know, we spent a lot of time on our systems and our people and our capacity to make sure that we could do it successfully. Uh, but Dave Barton really championed um, uh, that leg of our business growth. So for us, it was about an opportunity in the industry. And it was about uh, being able to leverage back and middle office across you know, a, a broader number of advisors. And it just seemed like it made good business sense. Perfect. So at the time of recording this, we just had the Super Bowl. And I'm sure a lot of kids went to bed this past week dreaming of, of being in the NFL one day. Uh, I'm guessing there aren't too many kids that went to sleep this week dreaming, I hope to be a COO of a registered investment advisor when I grow up. <laughs> so I always love to hear on this podcast when we interview COOs, I always love to hear the backstory of how you wound up in your position today. So Michael, there's actually, there's two things going to your website, reading your bio. There's two things that jumped out at me. One is you graduated from UC Santa Barbara. I was a gaucho from 93 to 95 and then wound up transferring to UCLA where I, where I graduated. Graduated, but um, you always feel a better connection to wherever you were for your freshman year. So I always have a, a close connection to UC Santa Barbara. So first of all, go Gauchos. Nice. Uh, yes. And then the other thing, yep. I'm I'm get, I don't know if a lot of our listeners realize this, but San Francisco is sort of a large city. <laughs> it's not a town in the middle of, of the desert. Somehow, according to your bio, there was a Michael Cosman day in the city of San Francisco. And I have no idea how you pulled that off. So yes. I, I want to hear that story. In addition to how you turned down your NFL contract and became a, a COO of an RA. Yes, with much chagrin, I, I walked <laughs> away from the $28 million contract at the time in the mid 80s when they really wanted me to come uh, carry the football down the field. Uh-huh. And I chose to become an accountant instead. Um, you know, it seemed like a much more exciting and lucrative career. But, no, but seriously, I thanks for the intro and, and reference to being a gaucho in Santa Barbara. It was a great place to go to school. 
And from there, actually, I did go to work at Pricewaterhouse. And so I am a, a tax CPA by background and ultimately um, followed a rather traditional career path that really landed me in a place of being a small business guy. Now, I really learned about that in two different ways. One was at Pricewaterhouse, I focused on small businesses and specifically, actually, the winery and vineyard industry, uh, a really fantastic industry to work with when I was at Pricewaterhouse. Um, but it's essentially a bunch of small businesses and complicated uh, and also working in the tax environment, uh, being in a very strategic but regulated framework uh, actually has a lot of parallels to what we do today as RIA. And after I had done that sort of traditional career path, um, I ultimately decided that I wanted a bit of a left turn and went to work at a large nonprofit uh, in San Francisco that I, I helped grow and and bring from sort of cobbled together and really brought professionalism to an incredible organization and help expand it. Um, and ultimately, by the time I left, um, a somewhat bootstrapped uh, nonprofit organization became a really professional, uh, well-run uh, service organization providing hot-delivered meals and frozen meals and groceries with about a $12 million budget. And um, while it was a nonprofit, really the only difference is that the person consuming what you produce is not the person paying for what you produce. But you have all the same issues of sourcing and logistics and people and technology mm -hmm. and operations and management. All that is still there. Uh, and so that was really where I learned to be kind of the broad-based small business guy. Um, and as I was looking to leave from there, I ultimately did a little bit of going back to my roots, which were at Pricewaterhouse working with small businesses and high net worth individual time um, and was hired on as the first business manager uh, at Coaches Fits, which is a predecessor to Experian. And even at the time, this was in August of 2000, an RIA, we were somewhat large at the time, we managed $420 million, which in 2000 was a lot of money. Lot, um, yeah. Now that seems small. And then hiring somebody who was going to be a professional manager of the business was unusual. And it was a being, it was a bit of a pioneer on the part of Tim Coaches and Linda Fitz to do that. But you specifically asked about Michael Kostman Day and bringing a professional approach to Project Open Hand, which was the uh, nonprofit that I worked at. Um, and I'd spent about six years doing that. My last day at Project Open Hand was recognized by the mayor of San Francisco, Mayor Willie Brown at the time. He recognized my last day at Project Open Hand as Michael Kostman Day in San Francisco in acknowledgement of my contribution to the city and county and the people who live here and everything that I had done uh, for them. So March 31st is Michael Kostman Day. And of course, I get notes from friends and family every March 31st. <laughs> That's amazing. So it's great. It, it was really wonderful to be acknowledged for the hard work um, that uh, was Indeed, hard work and at the same time, incredibly gratifying. We fed 2,000 people a day, every day. And even though there were days that were really hard, you went home knowing you did an incredible thing. And it was great. And I loved it. And it taught me a lot of things that I know today uh, and that I still, almost 20 years later, now sitting in this chair, um, still employ. That's a, that fantastic story. Thank you. And then, Lauren, you've got a Santa Barbara connection. Obviously, you lived there before Mercer moved headquarters to Denver. And looking yeah. through your bio, I think you were an advisor prior to being on the operations side. So talk to us how you've zigged and zagged your way to the role of COO today. Yeah, you, you bet. And since, we, since the three of us have a Santa Barbara connection, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think any city anywhere has ever celebrated a Lauren Pearson Day. I don't know about you, Matt, but uh, but, but I think uh, I think uh, kudos to Michael on that. That's actually an awesome story. I did not, I did not know that. Um, yep. I uh, prior to Mercer, uh, I was an advisor at uh, Morgan Stanley. Uh, that was 15 years ago. Uh, Mercer recruited me. Um, started so uh, started as a certified financial planner um, in the Bellevue, Washington office. And it's interesting when when I kind of chart through my path at Mercer and I was reflecting as, as Michael was talking about his, uh, Michael and I are part of a COO study group, essentially. And I don't think there are two identical pathways that any of the COOs yep. uh, have taken. It's, it's an interesting position in that so much of what you've done in your background contribute to your success. But it's such a varied role that there is a there's a lot of life learning that, uh, that, that is broadly represented in the various COOs of, of RIAs and, and larger than that. But 
Uh, but, but yeah, my background was an advisor. I, I worked in Bellevue for a number of years for the company. And then um, as the company really started to take off, I think my, my career trajectory obviously benefited tremendously from, um, uh, from that. I moved to Scottsdale, Arizona to, uh, to take over running a branch for Mercer. And I was able to build a great team there and uh, client base. And as opportunity continued to present itself, we strategically decided as a firm to open up a, a new territory in Southern California. So I moved out to uh, Newport Beach to open a branch from scratch there. So sort of built our uh, Southern California presence. Did that for a number of years and then um, uh, up to Santa Barbara to run client service. Uh, while I was in Santa Barbara, our former um, COO uh, took an opportunity elsewhere. And uh, in the interim, um, I took over the operations responsibility, so it was essentially running client service and operations. And uh, when Dave Welling joined the firm, uh, he and I got along uh, immediately, and we had just a series of really great conversations about what the company uh, needed uh, in terms of um, our human capital and where I could best contribute to the firm. And uh, he gave me the choice to stay on as head of client service or uh, pivot into uh, the COO role, and uh, for me, I didn't. I didn't even think twice about it. I was. I was so enamored at that point of being able to solve uh, organization problems through the lens of operations. Uh, and, and I love working with clients. I miss working with clients, but I just find it really gratifying to um, to be able to uh, get my hands dirty every day and and dig into the the things that frustrated me when I was an advisor and. And that I know by proxy frustrated clients and uh, and run operations. So no, I didn't. I didn't grow up dreaming of being a COO <laughs> one day. But I think I think I found my calling in life, and I love it. And I can't imagine doing anything else. That's great, and I love how you said get your hands dirty because I think that's that's exactly every COO. I think everyone feels that way about their about their job. You're really in the in the weeds of the organization and and making decisions. That, that affect the long-term uh, trajectory of the firm. So that's that's a, a, a great phrase there. So we talked about it a little bit at the, at the beginning. Both of your firms are, are very well known as, as large RAs that attract and or acquire advisors, but you both uh, approach M&A um, a little bit different. So um, let's go to Lauren first. Lauren, can you just talk to Mercer's acquisition philosophy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as I alluded to in the in the question a little while ago, um, and as you stated, Matt, we we were uh, operating as a business for decades before yep. uh, we did our foray into uh, into mergers and acquisitions. And there is definitely an element of uh, the article that you referenced that we would not have been successful had we not uh, had our house in order. Um, but when we do acquisitions. Uh, we talk about being a uh, an integrator. That's sort of the the word that we use to to differentiate ourselves from some of the other strategies of of mergers and acquisitions in our space. And in order to integrate in the way that we do, uh, we have to have certain criteria for a potential uh, partnership with a with an RAA. And and first of all, there absolutely has to be philosophical alignment. And uh, what we mean by that is. Uh, we have to have a, uh, a mutual understanding that we are and are always going to be a client-centric, client-focused organization. And uh, and if we're talking to you know a, a potential uh, a candidate and we just don't get the the strong feeling that they're as committed as we are to that, then we'll take a pass on it. Um, second, uh, ideally, the the potential uh, acquire acquired firm. Um, adds value through uh, financial planning, through uh, through advising on wealth, um, you know, not singularly in, an investment strategy or something like that. So there has to there has to be some narrative arc that matches ours in terms of value add, um, and uh, the firm has to want to be part of the larger Mercer ecosystem. So we do uh, we do convert uh, to. Um, our shared instance of Salesforce, um, our shared back office, our shared middle office. Uh, and that frees up the advisors, the associates, the financial planners that we're acquiring to, to really specialize in, in what they love, which, which often is the client relationship. Some are great at selling, some are great at advising. 
Uh, we have picked up some great talent in operations, but uh, there has to be a desire on that on that potential candidate firm to to integrate into our ecosystem. So I think that makes us a little unique in the space, uh, and is definitely harder work. It's it's you know data conversions and uh, Matt. Of course, I know you remember we worked with you years ago mm -hmm. on um, helping to frame out the many hundreds of steps that are required to to do an integration successfully, and that was a that was a, that was great work that we did together, and we've been using versions of that template since. So uh, that's sort of our strategy in a, in a nutshell. And and Dave Barton, who is uh, who, who heads up our M and A strategy, he he really he really built the modern version of Mercer Advisors. Um, and I can't think of any better person to sort of represent our brand than him. And uh, uh, he does really well at, at communicating exactly who we are, and and and, and doesn't pull any punches. And, and we've done really well with it. That's great. It, it, we talk, we've talked about that on other episodes, too. I think it's so important that in an acquisition, one of the main goals for the advisor should be, I want to go back to being an advisor um, and stop thinking about the day-to-day -day, um, and just think about the growth of my firm. And the reason I'm thinking of joining a larger organization is I can, I can get rid of a lot of that. So kudos. That's, that's, that's fantastic. So, Michael, I know you guys view things uh, a little bit differently. So why don't you talk about how you approach acquisitions? Yeah. So our approach, it's not actually terribly different. I mean, I think all of these approaches among the various firms that do this um, are of a similar flavor, mm -hmm. uh, but I think there are core components of it that are slightly different. So ours, uh, we characterize as values-based. So really the, the first lens that we look through with potential merger partners is do we share the same values? And Lauren touched on this, the, you know, the, that client service ethos is a really important core value for us. And perhaps it seems a bit expected for that to be part of the ethos, but it's a really important one. So we're similar to what Lauren just described in that sense. But in terms of the values uh, component of it, the good, good merger partners for us need to share not only a belief in some of our core values, for example, one of which is clients are clients of the firm. People do not own a book of business. Uh, and that can actually be a turnoff to some potential partners that or merger partners that want to come in and say, wait a minute. So when I come in, I no longer own my clients. And we say, no, actually, that phrase, my clients, is verboten at experience. Um, they are clients that you work with or clients that you serve, but they are not your clients. The clients are clients of the firm, and we all work together to serve them. So that's a really core values-based uh, perspective that we bring uh, to the table and talk about with our merger partners or potential merger partners right out of the gate. Um, another approach that we have that um, perhaps somewhat narrows um, the perspective or the, the potential merger partners that we have is a key part of our strategy being the aggregation of assets and talent on behalf of our clients. So when we're looking at a merger partner, we will look through those two lenses and say, is this is this group of people bringing to us um, uh, assets that are, we're going to be able to aggregate uh, with our other clients for their benefit? And I could talk a lot about how we do that, um, uh, but posit that that's part of what we look at. And or is, is someone bringing talent to the organization that we can leverage for the rest of the clients and bring to the table in that sense? Um, and uh, so, what you will hear inside of that is it's not just about getting bigger. It's also about and more so about getting better. Uh, and that really is is the core pieces of our uh, philosophy, if you will. I love it. Not about not necessarily about getting bigger, but getting better and figuring out where they're going to fit into the broader organization. Yep beyond just the AUM that they're bringing with and that that's great. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then the uh, last component of it that, that Lauren started to touch on, but didn't specifically is the investment platform. Um, similar to what Lauren said, we require all of our merger partners to uh, not only use our centralized uh, operational pieces of our investment operations team and all of our systems, your portfolios need to be in our portfolio accounting system. It's use Salesforce, et cetera. Um, we also, to the extent that it is not detrimental to clients, um, require that the portfolios get converted to our investment platform. Um, and that can be 
uh, a piece that uh, is a little bit challenging. You know, if, so if someone is a stock picker, mm-hmm. we're not a place for them because we don't do that. And the clients that they work with who are accustomed to having individual issues in their account aren't going to be happy being at a place where their portfolio is primarily made up of uh, institutional class funds. So the investment platform has to be compatible. In fact, that's often the first conversation that we have so that we don't waste people's time. I mean, I'm the ops guy, not the deal guy, so I'm biased. But in my experience, it actually is that investment uh, mindset that breaks down more deals than anything else. It's not valuation. It's, It's I'm God's gift to investment picking and beyond that, I have to be the one that enters the orders. I actually have to sit at my desk and type in, buy six shares of Microsoft, whatever. And and the, mm-hmm. the fact that I'm joining an organization that wants to centralize trading and you want me just to tell somebody in, in a back room somewhere, oh, just add $200,000 to the portfolio. Well, that's completely scalable and what uh, what they should be doing. Uh, many, many advisors get, get hung up on that and, and that will break deals down um, immediately. So I, I, that's it's very smart that you guys are doing that early in the conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Whether it's whether it's the the value that they attach to what they're doing, like mm-hmm. in, you, in what you just described, they will associate personal value and satisfaction with fingers on keyboards placing trades. Yep. That's one perspective, you know. And the overall portfolio construction component of it can really be like religion. I mean, that's that's what we liken it to. Yeah. If you are a believer in stock picking, I'm not going to change your mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to try to. And, and it's not to say that stock picking is bad. It's a different approach, yep. uh, but it is a bit like religion. I can't change your religion. So let's go one step deeper. Um, we've, we've talked about the M&A approach of the firms, but now I want to talk about uh, in your roles as COO, how are you involved in the M&A process? Um, are you brought in during the negotiation phase, kind of that sales phase, so to speak, to tout the infrastructure uh, of the firm and tell the story of how advisors can grow more quickly as part of your organization um, uh, or and or uh, are you brought in after the deal is closed and it's really just up to you and your operations team to integrate the advisor into the organization. So Lauren, I'll, I'll go to you first. How are you involved in that M&A conversation that, that, that happens so often at, at Mercer? Yeah, I, I love the question, and um, uh, it is interesting. That is a um, uh, also a point that uh, that among Michael and my peers, there's a huge uh, variation on depending on uh, what the firm is and and, and how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. But uh, for Mercer, uh, we have a really well developed um, uh, deal team. So they've got systems in place. They've got um, communication uh, uh, buttoned up, and they they're they're really good at doing due diligence and and moving the conversation through the the various stages. Um, uh, probably on maybe half of the the deals that we do, um, I participated in the due diligence, uh, and that's usually as a um, sort of representation of of Mercer operations. Um, or if there's something unique about the particular acquisition and we really need to, to hammer through what, uh, what, what, what the details are going to look like on the other side. Um, but Dave and I have been, have been doing, uh, we've been working together for, for so long. I mean, you probably finish each other's sentences. Uh, he, he knows the right deals to set up for us. And um, uh, we pretty much anything that, that, that he gets across the, uh, the, the finish with us uh, then uh, becomes my responsibility for integration. So my work really picks up at uh, the the pivot point meeting we have. That we 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 have an all hands on deck. Everybody that was involved in due diligence, and then everybody that's going to be involved in integration. And we debrief. We talk through the nuances of the particular case. Uh, even after 30 acquisitions, there's there's definite similarities and definite definite processes we maintain. But each one is unique as well, so we have to make sure that uh, we're being sensitive and and, and communicating uh, across our different groups uh, how we're going to handle the particulars of a of an integration. So uh, you, when I get involved pre-deal, it's 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 really hard for me not to sell Mercer. I kind of <laughs> I kind of become the Mercer cheerleader that I that I am at my very core, and I think I think Dave just 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 feels at some point, you know, I take up too much airtime, so I won't stop talking about Mercer, but I do love it, um, and it's fun <laughs> being part of the due diligence. And I would say the one exception is if we're going to do something that sort of step out for us or or outside of our wheelhouse, 
uh, we as a management team have a, a very collaborative and open conversation on, is this something we want to do? Does it make sense for us? Uh, are we going to be able to be successful and support it? And we, uh, we, we debate it and there, there's no ego in the, in the result. It, and, and we find that obviously if we make better decisions up front, the integrations go well, and everybody's happier in the end. So, um, so sometimes I'm involved uh, before um, uh, before the deal closes, and all of the integrations then are my one of my core responsibilities. Perfect. And uh, Michael, how how are you leveraged in your role as COO to to attract and integrate uh, advisors into Experian? I guess that it's somewhat driven by us not having uh, the same structure of a deal team that Lauren has. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm involved uh, at the very beginning, um, even when it's simple. A, a glimmer of a potential interest from a firm. Um, I'm brought into that. I'm part of the deal team that's there in the initial conversations, in the middle conversations, during the due diligence, during everything. Um, and I think you know, one of the great values, and there, I think there's many values that an operational uh, person brings to the table, is that we are able to see many of the things that high-level leadership folks, with all due respect to our CEO, who is brilliant and wonderful and a detailed guy, he doesn't always see everything that can potentially impact valuation. Um, So if you, I think it would actually be a big mistake not to have um, a COO involved very early on in the process, uh, because they're going to see things that is going to make the deal team when you're going back and forth on that valuation and understanding the risks of what happens on day one and the difficulty of integration, the potential for employee or client attrition post-close, um, the COO is going to be able to see the, the trees that are there while the CEO is looking at the forest. It's very well said. I, I couldn't agree more with that one. And, and like I said, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. So stick with you, Michael. You had, you had mentioned earlier the 11 office locations. I know plenty of RAs that have one office location. <laughs> uh, and if there are multiple advisors <laughs> and multiple teams uh, servicing clients within that one location, it, it, even with the one location, it's difficult to get everyone marketing the firm in the same way and, and offering and touting the same services to clients. Even, even with one location, many times if you grabbed each advisor and put them in separate rooms and said, tell me about your firm, you would not know they were all selling this, uh, the same RIA. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. With, with, with the 11, and you mentioned all of them are slightly different, how as COO, how, are you, uh, how do you ensure a, a unified client experience across, across those locations? And how are you managing uh, culture uh, across multiple locations? Yeah, those are two big questions. Uh, hmm. Client experience, uh, they're both very difficult. Uh, and actually, I would probably say culture is is even harder. Yeah. We, but we, uh, we do it with uh, leveraging centralized platforms and centralized uh, shared services teams. That's the phrase that we use for marketing and operations and investment strategy and research, et cetera. Uh, we call them shared services teams and they're, they're utilized uh, by all the different offices. Um, it's one of the great benefits that we bring. You mentioned earlier about one of the things that um, potential merger partners are looking for to take some of that sort of shared services, central operations off their plates. So inherently, when you are utilizing teams like that, um, the client experience is as as uniform as it can be. You know, you have individual human beings delivering something, and it's going to be slightly different, and that's okay. Um, But we have, across the board, everything from uh, a standard quarterly report and there's maybe five versions of quarterly reports that advisors get to choose from, but there's a library. Here's a standard um, report that you get to uh, deliver uh, to things like uh, topic libraries. So we have a whole library of planning dialogues that all the advisors across the firm um, utilize. So if they're going to be going into a client meeting and they want to talk about when should I take, um, you know, elect, my social security or what do we think about education funding that is a standardized um, uh, approach it's a standardized set of principles and foundations it's a standardized deck they can use in a client meeting um, and nobody's having to recreate it um, and that is all maintained by a centralized group uh, in our planning strategy group Um, similar from an investment strategy perspective so there's uh, an investment deck that comes out every quarter we have um, a centrally produced quarterly meeting dialogue 
uh, deck that is available to people, and they can pull any of the pages they want out of that deck. They can't add to it, but they can, unfortunately at this point, it's like 180 possible pages. And most people pull out the 30 or 40 that are gonna be relevant to the client that they're sitting down with. So we have all these centralized processes and resources that are available to uh, the advisors out in the field, um, but they all come from one place. And so in that sense, it is a cohesive client experience all sourced from one location. And of course it's all branded the same with the same logos and brand and colors and that sort of thing. So that kind of client experience feels similar. Um, from a cultural perspective, uh, which I think of as our employees, but also somewhat the um, client experience when they're physically in one of our locations. Um, that's also something that we do a, a lot of um, central uh, nurturing of that experience, um, whether it's from uh, all hands calls with the CEO to uh, a biannual conference that we do where everyone comes into town, um, human resources makes their way around to various things uh, and uh, sends out standardized uh, materials. We have uh, a day of giving that happens every year um, where people go out into the community and then enjoy each other's company after that and do some community service. Um, so we try and do some things that support um, some of our culture um, that are uh, really driven and managed from a central place. Yep. Um, it, it's, it, it, it's a great topic. It is challenging. It is probably one of the things I think about every day um, about how to maintain it and how to make sure it doesn't start to fall apart. Yep. One of our, uh, our clients, talking about client experience, one of our clients said, PFI, I'm, I'm bringing you in here. I need you to standardize wherever possible and I need you to customize only where necessary. And I always, I thought that's a great, <laughs> that's a great mm -hmm. uh, slogan there. I, I, I like that, but that's, mm -hmm. that's a lot of what you're, what you're talking about. They all pull yeah. from the same yeah. place, but they can put their own spin on things as they, as they present. That's great. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the, it's, I actually love that phrase. It's, it is wonderful that like in our day of giving, when we go out into the community and do, do community service, um, that is done as an organization, but each local office, makes their own choice about when they want to do it. It's basically a summertime activity, mm -hmm. but they pick the day they want to do it and they pick the charity they want to go help, whatever is meaningful to them or the clients they serve in that market. That's great. So Lauren, you have it even worse, 42 locations at last count. And what did you say earlier? 405 different employees. So how are you right. across that organization? How are you ensuring that everyone's on the same page, both from client experience and, and culture? You bet. I just wouldn't characterize it as worse, Matt. That's that, that's my only caveat to answering <laughs> your question. Right. Um, uh, you have a larger right. opportunity, I, 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 Lauren. You have a bigger yes, opportunity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. I like that better. Um, uh, before we even get into centralization and standardization, um, I remember when I was an advisor and uh, we as an organization started talking about standardizing things and, and creating uh, uh, central functions or, or, or whatnot. At, at, when I was an advisor, that felt like really constraining sounding to me. Um, uh, and I could obviously see the benefit from an organization perspective, but as I matured as an advisor and then moved into operations, uh, my lens changed, changed on why centralization and, and, and standardization. Um, and, and I think our, our conversation here at Mercer is the more, the more things that advisors are doing manually that don't add value or that are uh, recreating something that already exists in a great form, the less of that they're doing, the more time that is freed up for them to spend doing what the real value add, which is nurturing the client relationship helping a client define and achieve their goals and, and coaching them on the behavioral biases that, that would derail a plan. So standardization really for us is about um, ensuring that the client uh, has a, the best experience that, that Mercer can deliver, uh, regardless of you know, where the client is, who the advisor is, et cetera. So our process to, to, to get uh, to, that, that got us to where we are now um, has taken years and, and probably the better part of a decade, I think, to, uh, to really fully realize. And, and there was sort of a period of time where uh, we put a lot of work into the, uh, the, the fundamentals of, of what we needed to do as a business to be able to grow and scalably manage. 
uh, people and culture over 42 offices. And it started back in 2015 with a pretty big overhaul to how we organized our, our client service group at Mercer, uh, defining roles, creating um, defined learning paths, assigning clients to, to specific teams, and, and really delineating all of the human capital into, uh, uh, into defined clear roles. So once we had the human capital organized over you know, however many branches we had in 2015, it was probably about half of what we had now, then we delved into codifying the workflows that, uh, that those people were going to be doing and the way in which they were going to be interacting with our centralized resources. So if we hadn't organized the human capital in the first place, if people weren't, weren't working in um, uh, uh, clearly defined roles, then it would have been really hard to create uniform workflows that everybody could participate in. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, that, that second building block, the, the workflow creation, the standardization of how things got done uh, was, was sort of our next step. Um, and although we'd been using Salesforce for a number of years before that, I think that's when we really started to realize the, the benefit of having a CRM that was um, uh, um, pretty much used by everybody in the organization. It's how, uh, it's how you in, uh, in our New York branch get a, an estate plan queued up and completed for a client uh, from our centralized team that's now here in Denver. With the same process, it's certainly easier to onboard new clients when we do acquisitions. I mean, we have pretty much all of the workflows documented and we're migrating those to our learning management system, which gets more and more robust each year. And then I think the, the, the final step on this phase, at least, of our process was our move to Denver made a decision as a team two years ago, a little over two years ago now, that in order to serve uh, the advisors who work with, of course, our clients across the country in uh, uh, our future state, which is more than 40 offices, we needed to be in a location that um, was centrally uh, located to the branch network that we have. And we wanted to create a place that wasn't a, a corporate uh, headquarters. We wanted to create a, 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 um, a hub of energy and activity and collaboration that would serve as a touch point for all of those 40 offices. So since moving into our new space here in Denver, uh, we ran a series of what we call academies this last year, where we'd have uh, 12 to 15 folks in from the field uh, from various different branches and and. Uh, it would essentially be a workshop for for three days at a time. So that that Denver Central Hub and the concept behind it uh, is one of the most I think critical uh, components of our success and and a, and a building block that's going to help us now continue to uh, to grow over the next five years. But but that was basically the journey that we took. And and I kind of like to think about Mercer and and probably any organization as a as a constant work in progress. You know you you, you never achieve an ideal state. You're always working towards the optimal state and making progress each year on that. And you create your five-year plan and, and then life happens and things change and you've got to be adaptive as well. And that's, that's part of what makes it a challenge and part of what makes it worth getting up in the morning and doing it. So yeah, that was a, that, that's kind of our take on, on standardization. That's definitely how we're able to manage the opportunity, as you said, of 42 yeah. offices. Your, uh, your comments were a perfect segue into my, my last question. It's a big one. So one of the, the many goals of this podcast is we're hoping to open the eyes of some RA owners out there and get them to view the COO role, not just as an ops person that manages the technology stack, but that the COO can be an internal business consultant. And we talked about your backgrounds and how incredible those are. So really turning to the COO as that business consultant who can look at the firm holistically, not only work through the technology and operations and efficiencies, but can act as, uh, as that consultant to the business and, and be thinking about the five-year business plan. Uh, it's my hypothesis, which I, I try to prove with this podcast. It's my, it's my hypothesis that it's the COO that can take that metaphorical step back and think about the investments that you're making today in the business and, and how that's going to shape the future. So, uh, Michael, first of all, what do you think of my hypothesis? Is it correct? <laughs> uh, and secondly, what decisions are you making today that have an impact on that five-year plan for, for Aspirient? Yeah, I would say that your hypothesis is correct. And at the same time, for large firms like Aspirient and Mercer, the CEO is absolutely in that 
visioning seat. Mm -hmm. I would say that their visioning seat is more from a industry and sort of company strategic perspective, you know, much more so from almost like a hundred year plan than a five year plan. And I think the COO's role in an organization of organizations of our size is kind of to bring some reality to that, (laughs) frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only think about things in the near term, but along the lines of your hypothesis, yes, to think about that five-year plan and what we need to be doing today um, in order to be prepared for whatever may come our way um, over that sort of midterm horizon. Um, It's for many client service people, and Lauren can tell me if my hypothesis (laughs) is correct there, having been on the client service side, it's really about next quarter. It's really about my next client meeting. It's really about, you know, giving the client what they want today. Um, and in many ways, um, you need someone who isn't serving clients to go, yeah, but you actually don't even really know what you're going to need three years from now or five years from now. And part of my job is to make sure we're thinking about that. Um, and we get out into the world and we, we have that perspective. It's actually one of the parts of my job that I actually find the most interesting and the most gratifying is to think about where is the puck going in five years? What is that client experience going to look like in five years? Well, how are clients going to want to interact with us? Um, you know, is someone going to be sitting on their sofa in their living room and there's going to be a webcam on their TV and that's how we're having a meeting with them? Well, if so, I need to be thinking about that now because mm-hmm. I can't make that happen overnight. Um, you know, I need to make sure we're building infrastructure that doesn't meet, need to be completely dismantled if that's the direction that we're going in. Um, and you could take that analogy through to everything from cybersecurity to whether or not we produce quarterly reports. Um, and you have to think about the longer term, but then also think about what the needs are today, tomorrow, next month, next the end, by the end of the year. Perfect. So, Lauren, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis that ensures the operational costs today are scaling with the business and setting up Mercer for the for the five-year plan. Yeah, you bet. Um, and it is interesting as, as uh, COO relative to, uh, to my time as an advisor, Michael, to, to kind of uh, answer the, the question that you posed there. I think a great advisor uh, uh, lives in the, the, the moment and the interaction with the client on a daily basis. So as an advisor, uh, that required my undivided attention and, uh, and complete focus. And um, that's what makes a great advisor, somebody that kind of can live presently in that client relationship on a day-to-day basis. That requires that there are other people in the organization that are one step removed from that and are thinking about the strategy and are thinking about uh, the projects that, that, that we deploy each year to achieve the strategy. Um, uh, at our organization and, and, and sort of my role of COO, there's definitely a strategic element to it, uh, without a doubt. Um, I operate on a, on a really, with a really effective group of peers on our senior executive team. Um, and I, I have to represent the, the, the realities of, of how we're going to execute uh, goals and objectives that we set out. Um, and, and, and then I've got to get my hands dirty, like we referenced earlier and actually be able to deliver on those results. So sort of the framework I use is we have to, as an executive team, maintain our, our alignment on what the firm's purpose and vision is like period, end of story. That's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Why are we here? What do we do? And we got to be completely aligned on that. And we got to make sure that the organization is aligned on that. If we're aligned on that, then it's a, a process of setting goals for where we want to be in five years. Uh, if you don't know where you want to end up, it's awfully hard to figure out how to get there. Um, once you have those goals figured out and, and, and goals for what we want our service model to look like, what, what, what growth we want to achieve, profitability, margins, <laughs> et cetera. Once we have those goals established, then uh, really one of my, I think, core contributions is helping to build out the strategies that we're going to use to achieve those goals. And the strategies end up uh, being composed usually of projects. That's, that's sort of my, my, the increment of work that I think in. And I always remind my, my directors that any of the projects that we do have to link all the way back up to what our purpose and vision uh, as an organization are. So that, that, that keeps us focused in the, in the sprints that we do along the way. 
uh, on getting to where we need to be as an organization in five years while still maintaining uh, who we are and, and who we decided to be at our core, which, which of course is our long-term vision. I do love the variability in the day-to-day work. I love the fact that there are some days where I'm very much in the weed and working alongside and, uh, and climbing the mountain together with my, with my colleagues. And there are some days where I get to be reflective and think about strategy and how the different components of the organization relate to each other. So yeah, even though I, even though I, I didn't grow up dreaming about being a CEO, it's pretty, it's a pretty fun spot to be in. You two are incredible. I had very high hopes for this interview, given your backgrounds and your experience, and, and you did not disappoint. So um, Michael and Lauren, thank you so much for being here and sharing your stories with everybody. Oh, thank you, man. Matt, you're welcome. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I appreciate uh, you asking us to come on it on here. I think it's been great. I'm sure Lauren and I could continue to talk for a much longer period of time and bounce things off each other. The hour that we've had together has been, um, been really wonderful. So thank you for pulling it together. Yeah, thank you. And I don't think Michael and I have ever had a conversation last less than an hour. <laughs> it usually is a multi-hour conversation, but at least it involves like a cocktail yeah. or something like that at Michael. I mean, our conversations usually spill the cocktail hour. Am I, am I the only one that's been drinking this last hour? <laughs> love it well uh, that's a wrap on episode 15 and i'm looking at jay here in in the room if we follow our historical pattern that means that we're going to be putting out a blog post soon that recaps the top lessons from episodes 11 to 15 so everyone can keep a a a lookout for that and uh, you can get email alerts whenever we post something new to our blog by going uh, pfiadvisors.com Click on blog up at the top of the page and then around on the right hand side of the blog page, there's a subscribe um, button there that you can you can get um, notices. We've been posting stuff uh, every week, um, either a new podcast or a new, a new blog post. And of course, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Um, I know we're on iTunes and Google Play and um, Jay's been posting it in a bunch of other podcast hosting stations as well. So thank you all for listening and we will talk to you soon.